Welcome to the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. When talking about the built environment, we would do well to remember, we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. Therefore, on each episode, we'll discuss the latest trends from IATMO in plumbing and mechanical safety, sustainability, and resiliency. Join me, your host, Christoph Lohr, and together we'll explore the ways we can make our buildings shape us for the better. Welcome to this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. This is part one of a two-part series where I'll be speaking about plumbing resiliency and drought prevention with Cynthia Campbell, Water Resources Management Advisor for the City of Phoenix, Terrence McCarthy, Water Resources Policy Manager for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and finally, Doug Bennett, Conservation Manager for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. This week, we're going to focus on the concept of drought prevention. And as I was corrected by one of our guests today, uh, including drought preparation, some of the things that we need to realize in the plumbing industry is that every municipality is different. Uh, and that different approaches may be needed and are likely going to be needed for different locations. Therefore, customized approaches to fixing this problem are important and engineer solutions need to be tailored for the people they serve. And as a result, there's this kind of mantra of cultural, 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 uh, or culture, 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 uh, when you're thinking about what various locations will do compared to others to try to help fix this problem. So without further ado, let me introduce our three panelists for this week. First is Cynthia Campbell, who is the Water Resources Management Advisor for the City of Phoenix. She manages the city's water portfolio and advises the city manager and water services department on policy issues relating to long-range water planning and strategy. She's the city's liaison with the State of Arizona, Central Arizona Project, Salt River Project, and other organizations on water resource issues. Prior to accepting the role of Water Resources Management Advisor, Cynthia served the City of Phoenix as an assistant city attorney for five years. She also spent five years as a compliance manager of the Water Quality Division of the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality and three years as assistant attorney general at the Arizona Attorney General's Office. She's a graduate of Northwestern University School of Law and has a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So good to be here. It's good to have you here. Next up is Terrence McCarthy, who is the Water Resources Policy Manager for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, also known as LADWP. He's a licensed professional civil engineer in California, and his current responsibilities include management and development of water conservation programs, monitoring and evaluating regulatory and legislative issues, pursuing external funding and support for programs, participating in statewide and nationwide organizations to leverage opportunities, and coordinating with many regional partners for water sustainability in Los Angeles. Terrence spent a portion of his career doing capital project management on everything from sludge digesters at wastewater treatment plants to baggage handling systems at airports before moving to LADWP Water Resources Division, where he has managed things like a climate change study on the Eastern Sierras and a water conservation potential study to assess the remaining water savings potentials moving into the future in Los Angeles. Terrence, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Christoph. It's great to be here. And last, but certainly not least, we have Doug Bennett, who literally began his career, quote, in the trenches, end quote, in 1980 as a landscape maintenance and irrigation technician working his way through college. Armed with a bachelor's degree in agriculture and a master's degree in business, he served eight years as an assistant professor for New Mexico State University, where he specialized in urban horticulture and promoted water-efficient landscape and efficient irrigation techniques. In 1995, Doug developed and managed a variety of water efficiency programs for the city of Albuquerque, including landscape conversion rebates, water waste enforcement, residential retrofit audits, appliance and fixture rebates, and landscape industry education. 
Since 2000, Doug has been conservation manager for the Southern Nevada Water Authority, managing one of the nation's leading conservation incentive programs and coordinating regional water efficiency efforts for the Las Vegas, Nevada area. Doug, it's great to have you on. Hi, Christoph. Good to be here. Well, with that introduction, hopefully our listeners can hear that we have a Southwest theme, uh, and that was uh, intentional as we had conversations to prepare for this podcast. Uh, you know, we wanted to kind of focus a little bit on on the Colorado River and, and three of the largest uh, users of the Colorado River within the region, and just to kind of highlight some of the differences in thinking. So really excited to have all three of you on. Thank you again in advance for your time uh, and, and really looking forward to having your expertise shared with our listeners. And to start things off, the first question uh, to Doug, which is how do we define drought conditions? Well, you know, there, there's obviously a definition of a drought, a hydrologic imbalance where simply precipitation is inadequate to meet the needs of the system, both its natural needs and the users on that system. But I think it's important to look at it through a lot of different lenses. So here in Las Vegas, we normally only get about four inches of rainfall per year. We'd be pretty happy to have all four inches in any year because that doesn't happen too often. But if you only got four inches in, uh, for example, in Los Angeles or in Tampa or somewhere else, it's a crisis. So putting it in perspective, you have that local perspective. But even more important, the Colorado River, which threads my community together with Cynthia and Terrence's, most of its water is coming from more than 500 miles north of us. So while it's continuously dry in Las Vegas and people say we're in a perpetual drought, the reality is we're more focused on the drought conditions that may be several states away. And so people need to look at the big picture in terms of how their local water supply works. Yeah, there's a, definitely seems to be, a, like you mentioned, Doug, this kind of almost dichotomy between you know where the water comes from, like you mentioned from 500 miles away and how the impacts of various locations you know, and the weather patterns of various locations can impact that. And, and I imagine there's a little bit of a relative nature to drought as a result. Um, Cynthia, do you want to kind of talk about that? I mean, even, you know, Las Vegas and Phoenix, there's obviously many similarities, but even there, there's some some differences, I would imagine, too. Right. That's correct. I, I really agree with Doug's comments about the relative nature of drought. I really think that you have to think it's not so much how you define drought in terms of this conversation, but whether or not you consider it to be a temporary situation or is it something that's more institutional at this point or routine, like is probably more the case for Phoenix and, and Las Vegas and probably more and more for Southern California as well. You know, in other parts of the country, when you talk about a drought, drought can happen obviously anywhere in the country. But for many locations, you know, they'll, they'll face their quote drought in a single summer or a small amount of time. What we're looking at here on the Colorado River Basin is something much more ominous in, in many ways, and that is, is that we're looking at a long-term potential reduction in supply. And whether you call that drought or mega drought or hot drought or the new normal, either way, the point is, is that we have to kind of think more of it as it's the way life is right now here in the Southwest. It may be the way life is forever. And so we're always going to be hot. It's always going to be dry. And while river conditions may ebb and flow, because it is hot and dry in these locations, we have to think about this on a more cultural 
way. We have to adapt as a culture to live within our means in terms of water. Well, and at that point you make, Cynthia, about culture, you know, I think that kind of also makes me think when it comes to drought uh, and, and drought conditions uh, and, and that drought preparation and prevention, and I think you were the one that mentioned, you know, it's, it's more preparation than prevention in many locations. You know, that makes me think too that a local local history, you know, when it comes to trying to manage to manage drought and managing low water supplies can have its impact on drought conditions too. I, I guess, Terrence, have you have you seen anything like that in that regard, um, you know, where local history has had that sort of an impact on consideration uh, of drought? Yeah, so feeding a bit off of what Cynthia was talking about and Doug, you know, in California here, we've experienced several droughts throughout the past many decades. And in, in the early times, we've been more reactive than proactive. And immediately following those droughts, we've seen a significant rebound. But with the most recent drought we had here in California, we saw that demands somewhat stayed low and it goes in line with the California regulatory requirements of making conservation a California way of life. And so to that point, it's that cultural shift of kind of changing. And here in Los Angeles, we've had a long history of success in responding to droughts and implementing change to get people more aware of what a valuable resource water is to not only life, but also business and and other things that uh, we've reached a point where we're, we're trying to get a little higher on that tree of finding the most efficient uses and uh, being creative to try and identify the best way to use uh, water in times of drought and in times of non-drought as well. Well, let me bounce that back to you, Terrence. What is the best approach to drought prevention or drought preparation? And, and is there just one way? I don't think there is one way. I think there's gotta be multiple ways to address drought prevention and balancing that with what works for not only water utilities, but also for the customers they serve. You know, first off, one approach might be diversifying your supply portfolios instead of relying on one source to get your water from. But that must be done cost effectively to kind of balance that impact to customer bills because, you know, some water supplies that may be more resilient are going to cost more to generate for the water utility, and that'll show up on customer bills. And then also mandatory requirements are most effective with effective communication and messaging, but they also need to be tied with some form of monitoring or enforcement because otherwise people will forget that those are the rules and that's what we need to be doing to be more efficient with our water use. And then finally, you know, it needs to be achieved that efficient water use without sacrificing the quality of people's experience with that water. So, you know, a, a good example I like to liken to is taking a shower. I'm sure people could probably still clean themselves with, you know, a quarter of a gallon a minute, but it wouldn't be what they're used to and it also wouldn't be extremely comfortable for them. So you still get the same effect of cleaning, but uh, you still need to maintain that satisfaction of the quality of that product. I like it. Doug, uh, I was going to say, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I want to go back and revisit. So Cynthia talked about long-term drought and the Colorado River is essentially in its 21st year of 
significant drought conditions. And then Terrence talked about uh, shorter term drought. So the watershed in his region of California, actually they have a lot of diversity in their water portfolio, but the rainfall and the snowfall in California can make a significant difference in whether water's available as normal or needs to be constrained. And one of the challenges that all of us have is these programs, in some cases, you find yourself turning drought on and off because Mother Nature may do that too, or a policy can do that to you as well. But you have to tell people, it's a crisis. I mean, we're it, in some places, they're literally going, it's feast, it's famine, it's feast again, it's famine. You know, I mean, it's, it's so hard to build that culture around that. Uh, whereas instead of a light switch where we just say it's either on or off, it's almost like we need to develop more of a, a dimmer switch. It's a little work, you know, I need you, I need it to be a little darker in here, a little lighter, a little darker, and be able to have a lot more of a sliding scale. And so one of the things I found is super important as far as preparation is, we talked about culture, is community engagement. Because utilities don't do this on their own. You can make whatever rules you want, policies, et cetera, et cetera. You really get the greatest impact from your community performing voluntarily, that people get behind something. So we found that out in the early 2000s that all the programs that we created were dwarfed in their measurable water savings by other things that people just did, but we didn't know what they were exactly, right? So it's really important to bring your stakeholders in, your businesses, all your all the players in the economic, environmental, um, messaging, and build those relationships so that everybody knows what you're faced with, what the choices are that might be available to you, and what the potential consequences are of choosing different options. And then letting the community help guide you so that you can say, we're doing this together, not, you know, I dropped this on your head like an anvil in a cartoon kind of thing. I couldn't agree more. I, I think the way Doug described conservation efforts is, is really the way that Arizona has largely approached it historically. And probably one of the reasons why we, you know, we don't have short-term types of programs just because it is a it's a long-term problem from our perspective. I don't even know if we have a dimmer switch here. <laughs> I wish we did, but I think we're just always on. And and we're trying to have our customers understand that we're always on without without communicating that somehow we're in a crisis mode. The crisis mode is what we're trying to avoid and and we we approach it from that perspective that look this is the way it is all the time and it's not a crisis as long as you are prepared for it and you understand that that's part of our reality all but that the challenge of the long haul right cynthia is is the um, the burnout mm -hmm. the conservation complacency i mean people can actually get tired of towing the line at some point and as you know like terence said you see this rebound effect so people will do all this all this you know difficult work or make better decisions and then after a while, they start to slip back a little into their other habits. And Terrence brought up another good thing. The agencies themselves have expenses and anticipated revenue needs and bills to pay and so forth. So when I was just a young conservation pup, 
I was working for the city of Albuquerque and we, I can't remember what our conservation goal, I think, I think it was 5% and we got eight and I was so happy. We were like high-fiving over in the conservation department. <laughs> the finance department hated us. <laughs> you know, they were like going, wow, you know, and they don't, they don't care if you had planned financially to get eight, if that was the plan. But surprisingly, it was the first time I learned that overperformance has consequences for others, right? And that there, there was a, an issue in terms of the, the loss of revenue and the ability for the agency to meet its financial demands. And so there's so many facets to this that can be much more complicated than you can imagine. And especially on the Colorado River, you're talking about nations and states. And that's a great point, Doug. And I want to I want to hit on that here for a second. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's more complicated, right? And there's all these kind of unintended consequences of things. You know, my sense is that many folks think, oh, water conservation, or I shouldn't say many folks, but, but there's a large swath of folks in the population that maybe think, oh, water conservation is is a simple thing. You know, and that why don't we just go ahead and use low flow toilets in every area as well? So I think it was Doug. You had mentioned to me that first off, the, the terminology low flow toilet, uh, you know, it's high efficiency toilet in some areas, and then Terrence chimed and that you know, low-flow toilets might be used in some other areas. But that one technology that people think maybe it's a simple fix, that it's going to help in some areas and, and it might not in others. And I guess, let me go back to Cynthia. You know, you, you kind of had mentioned some, you know, kind of expanded on that concept of the dimmer switch. I mean, why is a technology like that going to help in some areas and not in others? Why is it not a simple fix? Well, one of the reasons is, is because a low-flow toilet is, is new technology. So if you are a community that is rapidly growing, like say the Las Vegas area and, and some parts of the Phoenix area as well, new construction is more likely to use some of the most efficient plumbing devices, which, you know, which means if you're trying to do a conservation program based upon replacing or retrofitting low flow toilets, that's only really so effective in areas of the city that are older where the original plumbing is not as efficient as it could be. I will say that using those types of programs to change out retrofitting more efficient plumbing is it's been an amazing boon to conservation. We've we've seen some significant declines in water use that we largely attribute to more efficient plumbing devices. But again, there's a, a case for the diminishing returns at some point. That only lasts as long as there are places to change out the plumbing. I think Doug pointed out in one of our conversations before that, you know, you can only go so efficient and then people are kind of like, well, I, I, I'm not looking for the super, super, super efficient toilet. No, and that's a that's a good point. I was to say, Terrence, you know, I think you had mentioned to me, and then uh, I'll pass it over to Doug. But Terrence, you had mentioned to me that, like in LA, you know, low flow is definitely something that you guys think about quite a bit. Do you want to just expand on that? And then Doug, if you want to chime in right afterwards, by all means. So it's going back to the terminology, you know, low flow toilets and and you know high efficiency toilets, premium high efficiency toilets. There's all these different gradations on toilet efficiencies. But one of the things that we've been very successful in the 90s, we had a toilet replacement program that installed low flow toilets. And now that we've come, you know, full circle, you know, 30 years later, we're still running a toilet replacement program. But as Cynthia had mentioned, there's a point at which you reach a diminishing return where swapping out low flow toilets for high efficiency toilets or high efficiency for premium high efficiency 
that the gains you earn in those achievements are kind of dwarfed by the cost of doing that. But uh, just one other quick point I want to make up is that, you know, again, this is a site-specific kind of question because Mm, we have our programs, but then also just drilling down to a specific building may not have good infrastructure for a 0.8 gallon per flush toilet to be able to move all of that waste downstream And so it may not work best for them. And then another thing, too, if, as I was referring to before, with a diversified water supply portfolio, if an agency relies on recycled water significantly, even for potable reuse, you know, reducing those those toilet flows is going to hit you on the downstream end. And not only for for water reuse, but also for wastewater infrastructure impacts. Yeah, I think Cynthia and Terrence have good points, but that goes back to understanding how your watershed works and how your utilities work and how the policy works where you live. So Cynthia's right. Phoenix and the Las Vegas area have an awful lot of homes that are post-1994 homes. So there's not a lot of room for new fixtures. Plus, we have native replacement of fixtures. I mean, most people don't have the same shower head that came with their house 21 years ago, right? And so they go to the store and they find these higher efficiency fixtures, the water sense labeled fixtures. But you look at LADWP or any of the coastal cities, much of their water throughout history, their wastewater was being treated and cleaned and then discharged to the ocean in a lot of cases. So being able to recycle the water in California is definitely, I mean, if you have that situation that you're just discharging it, you want people to be as efficient as they can be with those indoor appliances, right? Because that's less water coming out of your potable system. In our case in Las Vegas, all of our water is being either passively or actively reused. So even if there's... have some house that was built in the 50s and they still have their five gallon toilet in that house it's five gallons in and it's five gallons out for reuse so it doesn't make any significant water resources benefit for us even if i did have the old toilets our focus is purely on what we call consumptive use of water things that evaporate water to the atmosphere things that make a one-way trip from the colorado river into our city and never make it back to the Colorado River again. That's what we're concerned about. That's what eats up things. So there's some exciting projects. I know in the coastal returns, I'm sure you got a whole laundry list of um, recycled water projects because they're super productive in conditions like that, uh, where the water wasn't able to be put back in your portfolio. In some cities, uh, El Paso and a, a number of other cities, they'll treat the wastewater to high potable water standards and reinject it back into their aquifer because they don't want to lose it from their system. So there's some real exciting things going on there, and all of those things may affect where you choose to put your conservation effort. That's some really great points, Doug. And I guess Terrence, did you want to did you want to touch on any of that before we moved on during the through the podcast? Yeah, sure, sure. We do have some programs moving forward. Uh, we are just starting here in Los Angeles to do our groundwater replenishment program, and that's going to be starting up in the next year or so, where we do the advanced treatment of our recycled water and then spread it over the basins to go back into the groundwater basin and then use that water for potable uses. 
But then one of the bigger one of the bigger platforms we have going and we're in the planning stages now for is what we're calling Operation Next, which is where we take all of the wastewater that goes to our reclamation plants in the city and we recycle it for beneficial uses. And a, a large majority of that is for whether it be indirect potable reuse or direct potable reuse. And so that's a big a big program that we're starting up right now to become more like our friends in Arizona and Las Vegas. Awesome. That concludes part one of our two-part episode with Cynthia, Terrence, and Doug. Join us next week when we'll continue our conversation and discuss the best ways to communicate drought conditions to water users, getting kids engaged in water conservation, and strategies for minimizing the negative impacts of drought. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. Love this episode of the podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please follow us on Twitter at AuthorityPM, on Instagram at The Authority Podcast, or email us at iatmo at iatmo.org. Join us next time for another episode of The Authority Podcast, Plumbing and Mechanical. In the meantime, let's work together to make our buildings more resilient and shape us for the better. <laughs>